So today's premium guest is someone you may have heard of before, but I had not. I had not. I had no idea who Michael Alio was before he reached out to the show. I thought, aioli? Uh, one of my favorite sauces. Would love to dip some fries in that. But our colleague Jordan insisted that I talk to him, and I trusted her because I would trust Jordan with nearly anything. I am a lover of reality TV. I love it unapologetically. I do not believe in guilty pleasures. I think you can just like things, and you can like things whether or not other people believe they have you know, some intellectual value. And I would also venture to say that I'm getting a lot of intellectual stimulation from watching Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I think the extra cast member in this franchise is religious drama, and I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating. I think it is a great case study on interpersonal communication, do's and don'ts. Okay, so I love reality TV. There's one thing that I just don't watch. I don't touch. It's the Bachelor franchise. I don't. Like, I mean, <laughs> Becca Kufren's season, sure, she's from Minnesota. Makes sense. But other than that and Trista and Ryan, who I think were the first season, the Bachelor franchise, it feels like the waters are too deep and I wouldn't know how to wade in. And so I just don't watch it. So I didn't know that Michael Alio, not Aoli, was a fan favorite on Katie Thurston's recent season of The Bachelorette. That meant nothing to me. I didn't know that Michael was a widow. I didn't know that he was raising his son, James, on his own after his wife, Laura, died of cancer. But Jordan, Jordan knew all that. So she told me, you got to talk to this guy. You're going to have so much to talk about. The interview is going to last, I'm guessing, two hours. She was correct. This episode is not two hours long, (laughs) which you're welcome. So here's part of the conversation with Michael Alio. For the full-length version, head over to ttfa.org slash premium and subscribe. For $7.99 a month, you get access to bonus content like this, to ad-free episodes, to full-length interviews, and the sweet, sweet knowledge that you help keep this show going. Before you lost Laura, what was your most intense grief experience? What did you expect from grief? What did you expect from widowhood? What did you think it would look like? I'm 37. And, you know, when Laura passed, I was 34. And prior to losing Laura, I think I fell into that same category as everyone else, where you can imagine what it's like to experience, you know, heartache and loss and all of that. I mean, we've all lost something in the past that we really cared about. And so you just put yourself in those shoes and imagine it heightened if it was a loved one or, you know, a parent or a child or a spouse, whatever. But it's so much more complex than that because that feeling feels isolated. It feels like an event. And really grief is this like complex array of ups and downs and mixed emotions. And it's not linear whatsoever. It just comes in its ebbs and flows and once you feel like you're over a certain era or a certain phase in the grieving process, you have one of these days and it brings you right back to, you know, day one. You know, I did my grandpa's eulogy when I was 14 because, you know, my mother and my uncles and aunts, they just didn't want to do it. So I've always had this kind of relationship with a love of life and a celebration of death. 
especially when it happens to somebody else, you know, (laughs) like I missed my grandpa, but at the same time, like I didn't have the same memories as say my, my mother did uh, with her grandpa or my father. It's just a very different, odd, strange, complex scenario that unless you've really walked it and experienced it, you really can't feel the magnitude of the impact that it has on someone's life. Even post-Laura, I'm continuing to to learn about it and discover things. It's not as though, you know, you lose someone, you go through it, and all of a sudden you become a, a master in it. Uh, you just try to figure it out in a way that makes sense for you because everyone's journey is so unique and different. I think the fascinating thing about universal experiences is that they're still entirely personal. And I had not seen grief up close. My grandparents obviously died and my mom cried at the funeral. Then what? You know, I thought that I was somehow defective because I would lay in bed at night and cry about my grandpa dying, you know, or or cry about my uncle dying. Her little brother died. And, you know, my cousin suddenly didn't have a dad. And that felt so frightening to me. We just didn't talk about it. We just didn't talk about it. And so I didn't see it up close. And so I assumed grief equals crying, right? So if you're not crying, right? If you're not crying, it must be over. Sadness equals crying. So if you're not crying, you're not sad. If somebody had brought this up to me when Aaron was sick, and I'm sure somebody did, and I just snapped, or I would have snapped had this happened, if somebody would have told me I was grieving at the point of diagnosis, I would have said, fuck off. No, I'm not. He's alive. I'm not. And what I can now look back at from 2011 to 2014 is that, yeah, of course, like, of course I was grieving. You know, of course I was grieving for the loss of our potentially normal adult life. And all of the things that I thought, you know, would happen, but I don't, I didn't recognize it as grief. And I don't think anybody else did either, or at least nobody close to me was like, this is a lot. You're grieving a lot of stuff. No, it was like, no, we're just going to doing our best. We're going to get through it. Yeah. It's like grin and bear it and strength. The way it's been defined in the past is literally pushing onward. And a lot of times that is running away from these hard topics and, you know, these audits that you have to put into your life on a regular basis. For me, I didn't recognize this at first, but when Laura passed away, I mean, I was grieving the loss of my own life. Like it wasn't just this person, but it was, you know, 16 years of memories. And it's one of those things where like, Inside jokes no longer land with other people. You adopt their personalities, their habits. Like it becomes literally half of you when you've been together for so long. And then you're grieving the loss of this future that was planned out. You know, the you get the jobs and the house and the promotions and kids going to school. All of these things are working. And then all of a sudden, just like that, it's just gone. And so... You're trying to reconstruct pieces of yourself and also your future and how it could possibly resemble the image that you had in your head prior to the loss. 
you mentioned you become each other and that sort of shared history to not have somebody who is basically like your co-biographer, right? Like you have this huge impact on each other. Aaron and I were together for three years and he impacted my personality, my sense of humor. We had this shorthand. I just immediately more than anybody I've ever dated. And I had previously been in a relationship for nine years. We had like 16 years of history. We met in college. And when something reminds you of something and you bring it back to a memory that you experienced in the past, and then, you know, it's totally relevant. And you just like your story, you bring it up to new people and they give you that awkward laugh, like they understand. But then real quickly, you, you realize they were never there or know nothing about it. And you're like, well, I'm still going to tell it, goddammit. Like, I don't even care. It's not for you. <laughs> I remember just dating for the first time and like getting in the car and driving. And, you know, the first date I went on, it felt like an affair. Like, I had to experience the drive. Like, I'm going to meet somebody. There is someone at the bar waiting to see me and I'm going to see them. And, you know, I had to experience that because I can read all the books in the world. But if I don't experience it, then it's somebody else's like advice. I've always kind of had that rebel mentality like, yeah, thanks for your advice. But that was your experience, not mine. And, you know, that's really bitten me in the ass the majority of my life. But it's how I process things. And. So it's like I had to understand what that drive was like. I had to understand what it was like smelling different perfume or when those inside jokes didn't land or when someone touched me, even if it was casually on the shoulder. At first, you're just like you want to mace them. You go through all these processes and part of you is excited because it's fun to feel something when you're just so used to feeling like numb and it's like even pain feels okay because it's that numb feeling that really you know destroys us all the time and has us walking around like we're we're zombies but i i do i just i just remember all of that and you know i had to take those steps even if they were so uncomfortable just because i had i felt like i had to begin i was tired of planning everything out and doing all these hypotheticals and trying to figure out if time, if enough time passed, then therefore I'm all of a sudden going to be ready for something. And I don't think time itself heals if you're not doing anything with your time and and proactively working to make yourself better. It's, it doesn't work on a clock like that. And actually it can make your situation worse because you can fall into a rut in depression. It's it's a difficult thing. And I think the good thing for me, at least with what I'm equipped with, is I love feeling uncomfortable. Like, I don't mind that. I don't mind being scared. I'm a trial and error kind of person and way more errors than successes. But that long route sometimes can bring you to your truth. So I want to talk about the process of like, starting to date again and how that feels. I've been, I I think I've told people like, you know, my story. I, I mean, I tried apps. Tell me about like trying 
apps, what do you put on your profile? Like, what does a first date feel like? And like, who do you tell? Because for me, the judgment was not just coming from outside the building. The call was coming from in here. Like you said, it felt like an affair. I felt like happiness was an affair. I felt like I fixed a part of our basement, right? And I was like, well, oh my God, Aaron will never see this. This is bad. You know, like I just, oh, I'm doing something he won't get to enjoy. Everything that I did that was truly just like what life is felt bad. But I also knew that people would be shitty about it. I think in the beginning, I mean, I'm 37. So I thought I missed all of the online dating. I think it's really an efficient way to do things. I mean, I think it's a little bit caddy and, you know, things like that, a little bit material. Like, I don't, I don't know, surface level, but at the same time, it's like you have all these people online putting their best foot forward, basically submitting their resume saying, Hey, you know, I'm looking for a job. And so it's kind of a nice way to look at things versus approaching someone at a bar and they're like, no, I've got a boyfriend. You're like, Oh, I'm a loser. And so I like built a profile and everything. I started doing it mainly because it wasn't as though I was looking to like get married and like replace Laura. It wasn't that it was really like companionship. I think the companionship was really missing. I mean, Laura battled cancer really hard for two years. And I mean, that was the height of our intimacy. I mean, I I really think a lot of times people, they run away from difficulty and they, and they want everything that's good, but it's really in the testing, trying moments, difficult moments where real connection and intimacy like exists. And so throughout those two years, I was coming off this like height of just interconnectivity with Laura and, and everything. And then it just was like, oh, you're alone. And so, you know, I started, I started going on some dates. I kept it a secret from everybody just because, you know, they were grieving too. We were lucky enough to have so many people that were like close to us. I mean, Laura touched so many people that, I mean, even strangers felt like they knew her extremely well that I was scared that they were looking at me and wondering, oh my God, is he going to be like that typical male statistic that, you know, gets married a year after his wife passes because, you know, he doesn't know how to do anything around the house and he's just useless. <laughs> and, you know, going on those dates, it was really weird. I couldn't share it with anybody because they could act like they were happy for me. But I knew deep down that they were sad um, that I was moving on or moving forward, I should say. We do feel that pressure. It is also like a pressure to stay where we are, right? As yeah. And to be a museum to what was, to what we lost. And guess what? We are and other people come through those doors too. Like yes. we are, we are a museum of our lives and there's something about that, that feeling from other people. And it's a, it's a fear, right? That if you are dating, is Laura not important anymore? Is what we shared as like a group of people loving the same person, not important anymore? Is that irrelevant? And the answer is no, but I do understand that fear. 
I understand that fear. But what other people don't understand and what is so difficult to understand about all these facets of a loss, because you pointed out all these other people are also grieving Laura, right? Her friends, her family, your family, you know, her coworkers, your like anybody that she touched is that we're all experiencing it so differently. And for me, and I'm wondering if this was also similar for you, I experienced it as this abject loneliness that I had never felt before. Once Ralph was asleep, there's only so many times you can wipe the counters. Who wants to sit on the couch alone where you used to have a place, right? On the couch, like they they sit there, you sit here, you know where to put your legs, you know, like, and like, yes. now you're alone on the couch? No, I'm not going yeah. to bed alone in a bed that used to always have a person in it. There's just nothing. You walk into the house with your kid. There's no one to yell out to, right? There's no one to text and say like, are you getting milk or am I picking up dinner? Or there, it's just you, 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 yes. you. It's those like micro moments that unless you've walked, you know, in our shoes, you, you don't understand. They're not these events. They are living, breathing, ongoing. And it's so difficult for people who have lost somebody to even find the energy to take that first step towards creating happiness for themselves. We have to go through our own gruesome process, battling everything. And then there is also trying to find happiness within the boundaries and the pressures of this outside world that want us to do things in a certain way that makes sense for them. And when you step outside, out of line, out of this formula that they have created for us, then all of a sudden, they no longer look at you the same. And the guilt starts not becoming about Laura and losing a loved one for any of us, but it becomes, are we letting people down? Are we turning into somebody that we can no longer recognize when in fact, we're just trying to make sense of something that's really like unexplainable and it's so personal you know you brought up the couch thing like when laura passed like i adopted this really odd habit of sleeping across my bed yes like i yeah i started sleeping across it because it was laura's side and then it was my side and then it was like oh my god this bed is so empty that I just, I started sleeping across it and it was, did you do yes, that too? so bizarre. Like you literally- You were the first person I've ever heard that did that. Everyone's always like, you're odd. I couldn't man. even keep my head at the head of the bed. I could read that way. And then I'd like go to bed and be like, do, 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 like a sundial until I was yeah. like, yeah, I just had to, it, it could not feel the same. It could not feel the same. And I would go to bed, by the way, at like 3 a.m., two or three in the morning, like- Yeah, I was writing a lot during that time because I did want to, I mean, I knew hopefully at some point in my life, I would be able to be better than I was in the current state. And so I did want to like capture all of these like emotions so that at one point I could look back and remember what it was like during like the very low times in your life. But there's also tons of like re- really funny things that occur, you know, the, the shit people say, the awkward positions people put you in. I remember a handful of times, you know, a husband and wife, they would come up to me and be like, you know, so sorry to hear about Laura and everything, thoughts and prayers. 
And, you know, I'm like, thank you. I understand, like, appreciate you acknowledging my just horrible sadness. And then the husband would always say, hey, man, I don't know how you do it. I don't think I could do that. And it would be right next to his wife. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, Jesus, Frank. (laughs) <laughs> like she's right here. It's like, yeah, but if, if she got gross and sick, I don't know. I don't know, dude. Yeah, right. What a hero. And, and at first I'd be like, in, in the beginning, I was always like, you know, you'd be surprised what you're capable of, da, da, da. But then as it went on, I'd be like, well, what would you do? You know, like tell walk walk me through how you would actually react to this. And, you know, some of these people I'd be like, yeah, you're right. Like you wouldn't have a chance. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's you're not going to make it. Just acknowledge it. There's just so much like toxic positivity that's out there where people would just come up to you and say everything's going to be all right. And you're like, if everything was going to be all right, then why would I feel this shitty? I'm living and breathing it every day. Like you're basically just saying, yeah, I'm acknowledging it, but I really don't want to hear about it. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to hear about it. And especially for me, that feeling was amplified by knowing I had a little kid. How old is James for all of this? So when Laura passed, he was uh, two. Okay. Same. Wow. 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 Yeah. Laura was diagnosed with breast cancer seven months after delivering James. So talk about a wave of emotion. I mean, first, pregnancy is not easy on the body whatsoever. Seven months after delivering James, he stopped taking breast milk from one side of the breast. And that set off an alarm, went to an OBGYN. And, you know, she dismissed it as a plug milk duck, which is common. But we were like, that's not good enough for us. We want to take a look inside and then quickly mammogram, ultrasound, biopsy, cancer, like three days later. And it was like, oh my God, brand new child fighting for our life. Oh my God, how the hell are we even going to do this? It's hard to even think about and remember the tempo of life because it's so fast. I don't know if I'll ever have that like tempo again, where you are just constantly running. I still attribute my close bond to James from her not being able to like go up and breastfeed. And that was something I was doing in the middle of the night. But by the time you go up there and like lay the baby on your chest and everything, you're like, I don't know why we don't fight over doing this. Like it's the greatest feeling in the world. And it was always that like mixed emotion where, you know, I'm, I'm holding James up in his bed, you know, and knowing that it's very likely that, it's just going to be us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as though you're giving up hope. Like we never gave up hope. It's just that you are just preparing yourself and you can feel tides shift during treatment too. One thing that I always regret is I never let Laura really talk to me about death because I had to keep her energized. I mean, she had other outlets for that, but, you know, my role was really, you know, make sure she stays positive and optimistic and motivated to do the next scan or treatment. There was a time when, I mean, I was probably planning to be 
a widowed husband a year before she passed. I don't know. I, I was already starting to plan and think about how I was going to begin building my life. Yeah. It's like those moments where you're holding James. Oof. It's like, like I did all those things too. And it's like their presence was so Laura's, Aaron's, like so big, so real, so valuable. And also like just limited by the nature of that sickness too. And like, we're not heroes, <laughs> like, but it's no, like, not at all. but it's like bifurcating your reality where it's like, there's this one that you know is more likely, right? Which is like, it's me and James, baby. It's me and Ralph. And there's this other one that you're like, I want so badly to believe in. And I will, I will do everything I can to make sure it's the three of us. And uh, you just have to sort of like, you hope for the best while like knowing you will go through the worst version, the least desirable timeline. Yeah. I mean, just talking about that's like bringing me right back to those moments, which as painful as they are, there's, there's some immense beauty in all of it. All right, everybody, that was a preview of an episode that is on TTFA Premium. TTFA Premium is a subscriber base. It is a way to financially support the show that we've been making for almost five years. Good golly. Uh, you can subscribe for a couple bucks a month, support our show, get some extra stuff like ad-free episodes, like extended guest interviews, and regular bonus content. Uh, if you are able and willing to do that, you can go over to ttfa.org slash premium. That's ttfa.org slash premium. Uh, but I appreciate you either way. Okay, bye.